Jesus in saying all that he said to this point, all that he says here, especially before Abraham was, I am. I mean, it's a massive statement. Jesus was putting himself not only at the center of Israel's story, but at the center of everyone's eternal destiny. But he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. I am. And then they pick up stones to kill him. They don't pick up stones because they think he's a prophet. They don't pick up stones because he's claiming to be a swell guy or some sort of revolutionary. They pick up stones because he just said that he is God. This message this morning is really... Uh, in some ways, a bit of part two of last week's. Now, it's not directly um, like related. It's not on. Last week, if you weren't here, was I am the light of the world, and I'd encourage you to check that out if you missed it. Um, and it's not like I am the light of the world part two, but it's part two in the sense that uh, this one we're talking about today takes place in the same setting, in the same scene, at the same time frame, in the same area. It's actually a continuation. So after Jesus has made his first statement, I am the light of the world, right after he uh, forgives and, uh, you know, count or comforts the woman who's caught in adultery, he makes a statement, I am the light of the world. There's a bunch of stuff that happens after that. All of it takes place in John chapter 8. And basically what happens is, Jesus makes this claim, I am the light of the world. And I contextualized for that, that, that for you guys last Sunday, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles and the lighting of these giant 75-foot-high candles that uh, were remembrance of the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years in the desert and all the symbolism and all the richness and the beauty of that and how Jesus makes this very strong statement, I am that light, I am the light of the world. Well, after he says that, uh, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, and many other people who were there to hear it uh, are less than happy. And I'm not going to read uh, the entirety of John 8 this morning. Uh, there's a lot there. I would encourage you maybe to read it on your own uh, after the service today or if your life, life group is going to discuss it this week. But I do want to at least set the scene and kind of just describe it for you. So Jesus makes this proclamation, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me will never walk in darkness. And the Pharisees, the religious teachers, and some people and other levels of authority were like, That's, who are you? Like, who are you to make such a statement? And they challenge his authority. And instead of backing off or shrinking at all, Jesus actually doubles down. He actually starts to make even bolder proclamations and even bigger statements. He says, if I testify on my own behalf, that's one thing, but uh, God testifies for me. That, that doesn't help things in their eyes. They get more upset, and then they continue to come back at him. And again, Jesus doesn't exactly back down. In fact, he gets to a point where he says this. He says, uh, you know, you say uh, that your father is God. Well, if your father really was God, you would listen to me because he's my father. But who your father actually is, is Satan. Kind of a strong, strong statement, right? 
And he tells them, you know, you guys have been, uh, Satan was a liar and a murderer and a deceiver from the very beginning when he lies. It's his native tongue. It's in his nature. And if you, you know, actually had eyes to see and ears to hear from God, you would believe me. But because you're like him, you don't understand what I'm saying. They're not all that happy, right? So he makes, he just called them sons of Satan, okay? Sons of Satan, not a great way to get in with the, you know, popular crowd. Not, not a great way to like necessarily like build a church is to tell people that they're sons and daughters of Satan. But Jesus makes this statement. So after he makes this statement and he, he makes bigger and bolder proclamations about himself and then he challenges their authority and even who they're serving, they kind of come back and we get to this final chunk in John chapter 8, and that's where I want to start this morning. We're going to read verses 48 through 58, and keep in mind, I just gave you the, the context for all this. He's just told them they're not actually of Abraham, not actually of God, they're of, of the enemy. They're liars and deceivers and murderers. You'll see some great irony here in this, by the way. So it says this, the Jews answered him, we have this on the screen, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So Samaritans to them were like the lowest of the low, the most despicable people, like half-breeds. Like all, they just looked at them as like the, I mean, the bottom, you know, of the barrel, like scrape them off the bottom of your shoe, just disgusting, couldn't handle them. So they're accusing him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? You're the lowest of the low, and not only are you a Samaritan, you're a demon-possessed. Samaritan, aren't you basically like the worst person? And Jesus answers and says, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, again, making himself equal with God, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, and here he goes getting crazy bold again, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham, who was a huge deal to them, obviously, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. But who do you think that you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. And here's where it gets really crazy, as if it wasn't already crazy enough. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Man, it gives me chills every time. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Remember that he just called them a few verses back that we didn't read, murderers. 
No, we're not. Then they pick up stones <laughs> to kill him. The same stones that they had put down probably potentially only a few minutes earlier that they were going to stone the woman caught in adultery with. So they must not have thrown him very far because <laughs> they were able to pick him up. But very truly I tell you, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. So let's not make a mistake as we read this. They hated Jesus. They hated him. And by they, I mean the Jewish leaders here in John's gospel and many in the Israelite crowd. That's what we see in this text. I mean, they hated him. They were ready to stone him. But let's not think that the they in John 8 are the only people who ever hated Jesus. There are plenty of they, so to speak, in the world today in 2021. There are plenty of they here in Des Moines. If I can be so bold, maybe even some of the they here at New Point. Let me be abundantly clear on something. They hated Jesus. They weren't simply disinterested or apathetic or, oh, it's no big deal or whatever. No, 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 no. They hated him. They hated him. Many of us find it hard to believe in our modern context that people would hate or could hate Jesus. In this country, even if you're not a Christian, there's generally speaking sort of like, sort of a warm feeling towards Jesus. Right? There are songs that still play in the malls during Christmas time that talk about Jesus. Athletes, you know, score a touchdown or hit a game-winning shot and they thank Jesus. There are coloring books with smiling faces of Jesus that are sold all over the place. There are Jesus toys for good little Christian boys and girls. If you Google Jesus toys, you'll find all sorts of stuff. There are Jesus wind-up toys, a bendable Jesus, which we'll talk about in a little bit, like a Stretch Armstrong type Jesus that you can contort in all sorts of different ways. That's a, a definitely a metaphor. Um, and my personal favorite, as you see on the screen, a Jesus slap bracelet that hugs your wrist. Now, I don't know, like, I rem when I was in junior high, okay, so we're a long time ago here, slap bracelets were like the thing. So have they, I don't know, honestly, this is, this is a newer thing. Are they making, are they making a comeback? Yeah. Like, so I was thinking, like, I would legitimately wear one of these. Like, it's a perfect match with the tats, you know? Like, tattoos and a huggy Jesus bracelet. It seems good. Uh, yeah, I don't, anyway, I can't believe these things are made, but there's, there's plenty of Jesus paraphernalia out there, right? Here's our first truth for this morning. If, you're, if you want to, you know, mark it down, take notes, take a picture, here's the first truth. If Jesus is almost universally liked in this country, it's because he has been almost universally sanitized and sentimentalized. If Jesus is almost universally liked in this country, it's because he's been almost universally sanitized and sentimentalized. Who is Jesus in America in 2021? He's a nice guy. He's a spiritual guru. He's a best friend, a selfless hero, a champion of the underdog, a wise teacher, the ideal man, a good example, a revolutionary, almost whatever you want him to be, that's who he is. Think of what I just talked about with the bendable Jesus. 
Here's the Jesus that you have in your house, and you can just bend him and shape him any way you want, contort him, and you can make him fit in any area that you want, or you can bend him to your will. You can just do whatever you want with Jesus, right? But I wonder if people across our city and across our country and even some in in our church knew the real Jesus, the real Jesus, what they would think of him. I wonder if we were transported back to the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and we were there to hear Jesus' teaching and these claims that we read earlier, what would we have thought of him? No doubt, I think many of us would have hated him just like they did. And I wonder if there are all sorts of people even today that, though they may say that they hate the church or they hate organized religion, the reality is what they really hate is Jesus. All that Jesus says, all that Jesus stands for, all that Jesus demands of us, and all that Jesus does to get in our way of our self-centeredness and our personal fulfillment. But most of us find a way to sort of channel our rejection into more socially acceptable terms because to go around saying, I hate Jesus, doesn't go over all that well at business meetings and dinner parties, and neighborhood barbecues. Instead, we say things like, just not into, you know, organized religion. Just not into the, you know, the institutional church. And I I guess that's possible. But my guess is that you're actually not that into Jesus either. What you really don't like is Jesus You see, at the end of John 8, they hated Jesus to such a degree they were ready to kill him. That's why they picked up stones. But the question is, it's an important one to ask, is why did they hate Jesus? Why did they hate Jesus? There are two primary reasons that we're going to look at today that we see in our text this morning. Both incredibly important. The first one is, They hated Jesus because they misunderstood what he was saying. They say, you have a demon, right, Jesus? I mean, you have a demon, right? You're a Samaritan and you're a demon. There were ever a wrong answer on a test, right? This would be it. True or false, you have a demon. False. Jesus does not, in fact, have a demon, okay? It's their first century way of saying you're crazy, You are nuts. You are not in your right mind, are you? I mean, you're out of it. Years ago, I I came across this book. It's a very obscure book, out of print now, but it was called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti is a town in Michigan. And it was written by a psychologist who worked in a psych ward in this small hospital, this small mental hospital in this small Ypsilanti, Michigan. And in this small little psych ward, in this small little hospital, there were three guys in this one psych ward, all of whom believed to be Jesus. And they had the craziest group discussions. They had to try to reconcile, like, I think I am. Well, these guys do too. Well, you're not the real Jesus. No, you're not the real Jesus because this. Fascinating stuff. But that's what the Pharisees are saying here. You, you think you're something, you're out of your gourd. Like, you're out of your mind. That's what they're saying here. That the way that he is speaking, making these over-the-top, extravagant religious claims, he can't possibly be in his right mind. Why do they think that? 
So let's put this in context here. It's on the screen. Jesus, in saying all that he said to this point, all that he says here, especially before Abraham was, I am. I mean, it's a massive statement. Jesus was putting himself not only at the center of Israel's story, but at the center of everyone's eternal destiny. Think about that. Jesus was putting himself not only at the center of Israel's story, not just this small nation, but at the center of everyone's eternal destiny. They're hearing Jesus say all these things, and their conclusion is, you have a demon. Have you ever thought that about Jesus? Maybe it's easy to dismiss that. But I bet if you're honest, you might have. You ever read something Jesus said, those red letters in the Gospels, and then said to yourself, that's crazy. Like, no way. Love my enemies? That's crazy, Jesus. Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know how they've treated me? You know what they're, what they're doing? Love my enemies? That's crazy. Oh, what? Forgive the person that abused me? Jesus, you, you're crazy. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how long they abuse me. You, you don't know that they've never even apologized for it. And I'm supposed to for, forgive them? Seven times 70? That's crazy, Jesus. You've never been in my shoes. Maybe those aren't, you know, don't hit home for you, but how about this one? Don't store up treasures here on earth. Jesus, that's crazy. Do you know that the economy is up and down? Do you know that Social Security might run out by the time that I retire? Do you know, Jesus, that I've worked so hard for this stuff? I've earned it. I've put in long hours and I've made sacrifices. You're telling me don't store up treasures, that I should give stuff away. I should have radical generosity. Jesus, that's crazy. You don't live in America in 2021. Clearly, you don't understand. And they misunderstand Jesus. They think that he's a Samaritan. They think he has a demon. They misunderstand all that he's saying about Abraham. Jesus says, listen, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But my father glorifies me. And he goes back to Abraham and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. They think that he's disparaging Abraham. They think that he's making light of Abraham. They think that he's minimizing, you know, who Abraham was in the grand scheme of things. But what he's trying to say is, I'm not doing that. I'm not disparaging Abraham. I'm telling you instead that Abraham was an incredibly godly man through whom my father chose to bless all the nations and create this incredible, incredible nation. But I'm telling you that he was just a man. And he was so godly, though, that he looked forward to the day when I would come. And he was happy about it. Again, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the religious leaders because that's mind-boggling, crazy talk. Okay? It's like this. It's like if you were taking a U.S. history class and your history teacher is giving a lecture We'll say on the founding of our nation and the founding fathers and all that went into to that. And they, he, began, he or she begins to talk about great presidents and specifically starting with George Washington and all that George Washington did 
out the founding of our country, but then the history teacher begins to speak as though he or she is better than George Washington. Look, I mean, we have some politicians who make some pretty bold claims, but that's probably not the best way to run a campaign and garner votes. Vote for Josh Goodman. I'm better than George Washington. Think I could, you know, next election, think I could get in. And then it's as if he went one step further and said, if you vote for me, I'll be better than George Washington. But not only that, another truth is that George Washington's whole life, everything he did, everything he said, everything he worked for, that was all about me. Back in the day, George Washington, he saw me coming in 2021, and he was glad. He rejoiced when he thought about me. He was looking forward to me. In fact, if you take everybody on Mount Rushmore and you brought them all back to life, they would all tell you to vote for me. It's ridiculous, right? That's what they're hearing Jesus say. And Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he doubles down. He says, yep, Abraham did look forward to my day, and he rejoiced when he saw it. See, the Jews didn't have a problem believing that Abraham was looking forward to the Messiah. They all were. They all were looking forward to that. Abraham, of course, just like any good Israelite, would have been looking forward to that day. But now Jesus says, you know the day of the Lord that you've been looking forward to for so long, that you've been praying for for so long? The day of the Lord, as you've called it? Well, that's actually the day of me. Actually the day of Jesus. And they say, well, that's a bit too much, Jesus. And they misunderstand him and they hate him as a result of it. But here's the second reason they hate him and probably more so. They hated Jesus even more because they understood exactly what he was saying. They misunderstand a lot, but they don't fail to grasp the implications of his audacious claims. He makes this statement in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You notice he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. That would have been an incredible statement in and of itself because at this point, when Jesus is speaking, Abraham was 2,000 years prior. If he had said, hey, look, you don't think I knew Abraham before? I came before Abraham. Then they could have said, well, how did you come before Abraham? Like, are you some sort of angel? Because they would have believed that. Are you some sort of angel or something? But he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And then they pick up stones to kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. And some people try to get around what Jesus is saying here. To this day, 2021, people try to get around it. Maybe he was just making a claim to be a prophet. Maybe he was just making a claim to be the Messiah. No, make no mistake about it. <laughs> they understood full well what he was claiming to be. They knew. This is an important thing for this morning. They don't pick up stones because they think he's a prophet. They don't pick up stones because he's claiming to be a swell guy or some sort of revolutionary. They pick up stones because he just said that he is God. It's a bold claim to deity that they hated. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. 
You know, there are so many popular platitudes of our day. One that you may hear really often is that Jesus was being was killed for being so nice. He was killed for being so welcoming, or he was crucified because he embraced all the wrong people, the outcasts, and he was killed because he was hanging out with prostitutes and with sinners, or he was killed for courageously loving his enemies to the point that they just couldn't take it anymore. And listen, there's a little bit of truth in all of those statements, but none of those are the primary reason why he was crucified. He was crucified because he claimed to be God. That's why they hated him. That's why they wanted him to die. John 5, 18 spells this out for us about as directly as you can. For this reason, see, Jesus was always, they were always trying to kill him. <laughs> this is three chapters earlier. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The next time you hear someone say, well, Jesus was hated because he was such a super nice guy or because he was a revolutionary or because he loved his enemies or because he you know, was the champion of the underdog or any of those things, and they try to sort of just take down a few notches why Jesus was actually crucified, point them to this verse. I'm helping you out today. Put this in your back pocket, John 10, 31 through 33. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones. Again, this is two more chapters later. Are you catching this? John 5, they tried to kill him all the more. John 8, they picked up stones to kill him. John 10, and the, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Consistent pattern here, right? But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work. They replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus was killed for any other reason than that he claimed to be God, and the people that did it like that knew exactly what he was saying. That should also be a sober warning to each of us. Here's where the message shifts a little bit. Because yes, Scripture calls us to do good works. What did I preach on last Sunday, right? Let your good deeds shine so that people may see them and glorify your Father. You are the light of the world. We were prepared, right, for the good works that Christ has for us to do. We're called to do all those things. We're called to be great neighbors and great citizens. We're called to show love for all people as we're given the opportunity to do so and whatever love light might look like in that specific situation. But don't think, don't think that someday, whether officially from our government or more informally from the pressure of social media, or corporate America, or your neighbors, or even from your own family, that any amount of good works is going to get you out of this Jesus jam, so to speak. Who did more good works than Jesus? Who performed more miracles than Jesus? Who was a greater friend to outcasts than Jesus? Who did more to help the sick. At the end of John's gospel, he says, I suppose if we were to try to write down all the things that Jesus did, all the miracles 
all the healings. All the books in the world couldn't contain it. Who did more than that? And yet when it came down to it, they said this, look, Jesus, we don't care how many soup kitchens you've run, Jesus. We don't care how many trees you've planted. We don't care how much you've recycled. We don't care how many good things you've done in our community. You have blasphemed against our cultural absolutes. And now we hate you. Then the opportunity we have is to set ourselves apart by loving our enemies. But don't think because you call yourself a Christian and you do some good deeds that that's going to somehow get you off the hook if you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the great I am, that he is God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is all the things we've already talked about in this series and all the things we're still going to talk about, that he made exclusive claims. So you can do all that stuff that you want, but what makes people hate what make people hate you and what made people hate Jesus back then and still now is he said, it's only through me. It's only through my path. It's only through my way. I am God. You have to follow me. I am the son of God. And this is what you have to do. And they don't want to do it. They'd rather have the bendable Jesus. They can contort and shape however they want. And we should be darn sure that we're not falling into that trap, that we haven't compromised, that we're not sitting in here right now and listening to me and going, well, I believe Jesus is a way to heaven, but I don't believe he's the only way. Or I believe he was a good moral teacher, but I don't believe that he was, you know, the son of God. Let me restate it. Jesus was hated. Jesus did not die because the religious leaders of his day couldn't stand like a really souped up version of Tony Robbins or of Oprah Winfrey. They weren't sitting there like, we hate this guy because he's all about self-help. He's all about bettering the human, human you know, the human uh, destiny, about bettering humanity, about making this world a better place. We hate him because of that. They didn't, that's not why they were freaking out. They were picking up stones multiple times to try to kill him because he claimed to be the son of God. Another statement here. He died because he acted like the Son of God, spoke like the Son of God, and he did not deny the accusation when they claimed that he was making himself equal to God. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. It's a semi-famous one if you've read Mere Christianity or even if you've just read the Cliff Notes. He says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something even worse. But let us not, I love this, but let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The worship team wants to go ahead and come up here.
Let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. It boggles my mind. (laughs) It boggles my mind how many people think, yeah, I believe Jesus existed. I believe, you know, he was this good moral teacher. I believe he was this guru. I believe he was a nice guy. I believe we can learn things from his life. And I'm thinking to myself, you, have you ever read the Bible? And then sometimes I remember, well, they maybe haven't, <laughs> but it's very possible that they've gone to churches that haven't either. Or they've gone and they've heard people say this stuff from a pulpit. And it just kills me. And maybe it's because I'm kind of an all or nothing guy, which is not always a good thing, by the way. But I don't think that in this case, it's supposed to be any different. As I read the Gospels and I read these claims in the series, it's like Jesus is saying... Don't come to me with this good moral teacher stuff. You have a choice to make. Either I am or I'm not. But make a choice and get on with it. So here's the challenge for this morning. You didn't think I was going to like just let you off easy because it was Mother's Day, right? Here's the challenge for this morning. Can you honestly say... Can you honestly say, this is a question, guys, that I ask myself on a regular basis. You can give me a second as an aside. On a regular basis, I ask myself this. There are many times in the past, we'll just say decade, that, that Carrie and I have watched uh, documentaries or we've read stories about global Christianity and all that's going on around the world and what Christians' lives look like all around the world. We've heard testimonies and I've gone to conferences where they have a global perspective and I hear how these people are living and I literally, Carrie and I, it's like a running joke. I'll literally say after we hear the testimony or see the documentary, I'll say, am I even a Christian? Like, am I even a Christian? Like, I look at what these people are giving up and sacrificing and the, the lengths they're willing to go to for the gospel. And if you remember, I showed that clip from the guy in the Russian prison a while back. And then last week, the clip of, of Mike and Dina. And I just, I wonder, like, have I, can I honestly say that I've come to grips with the audacious claims of Jesus? Can I honestly say that? Or have I made a polite hedge? If you don't know what that means, it's like, have I kind of just like, kind of like one foot in, one foot out, you know? Like if I kind of said, well, Jesus, I'm, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to go here, but I'm not going to go here. So don't ask me to do that. Like I believe, like I believe this, but I don't, I'm not really willing to like embrace that. I can give it lip service, but know that I want my life to have to change a lot. Have you, can you honestly say that you've come to grips with the audacious claims of Jesus, first and foremost, that he is the great I am, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is part of the triune God, and all these things, that he isn't one among many options, he's the only option. Can you honestly say that, or have you made a polite hedge? Have you, have you said something like this, this is far too common. I, like, oh, I like him. He's okay. That's fine. I respect him. He's important. I want my kids to learn about him so they can get some good morals. 
Many of you said anything like that. That's just, that's just not, just doesn't cut it. Because if Jesus is God, that means he's your God and that Jesus of Nazareth has to be the center of your life. I mean, the center of your life, that everything flows out from him, every single thing that you do, every decision that you make, from the moment that you rise to the moment that you lay your head down at night, that he's the center, that he is the epicenter not your work, not your career, not your bank account, not your possessions, not your kids' activities. That Jesus is the center. Jesus must have your unquestioned obedience. He must be the overwhelming purpose and aim of your entire existence. I imagine a lot of people right now in the West, in the state of Iowa, in Des Moines, maybe here this morning or watching at home online, I imagine a lot of people have made a polite hedge with Jesus. I, I would pray that today would be the day that you move beyond that. But there's no more holding back. There's no more playing it safe. There's no more hedging your bets. There's no more one foot in, one foot out. There's no more bargains. There's a famous phrase from St. Augustine, and I'll just paraphrase it here because the original language is hard to understand. But he says this, basically. Jesus may flee from stones, which we've just read about. Jesus may flee from stones, but woe to those from whose hearts of stone God himself flees. Woe to those from whose hearts of stone God himself flees. We don't want to become desensitized or calloused or unfeeling. We don't want to have a Jesus that we bend and shape. We don't want to have a Jesus that we just slap on our wrist every once in a while so we can feel good and remember that he gives us hugs. We want to have the real Jesus. We want to have the great I am. We want to have the one that doubles down on his claims, but in doing so has an unbelievable, unbelievable future in store for us, not just in eternity, but in the here and now that he's able to do the things that he said he could do, which is to give us life and that to the fullest, that his promises, that his way of life is infinitely better than anything this world could ever offer on its best day. But the catch is you have to actually embrace it and move out. So Jesus said, I am. So here's the question. Will you, in response, look him in the eye and say, you are indeed? And then will you live like it? Let me pray. Jesus, we don't want to be a church that hedges. We don't want to be a church that plays it safe. We don't want to be a church that comes to you with one foot in and one foot out, but yet at the same time we confess 
that it's so hard not to do that. I confess that it's so hard not to do that. Jesus, we confess right now that we believe you are the great I am, that we believe, and that we believe that you have more for us. And in the same time, we pray the prayer of the father of the epileptic boy in the gospels who said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. So where there's areas that we're still struggling or we have unbelief or we're struggling to trust or to embrace you, I pray that you would break down those walls. I pray that you would break those chains. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. I pray that you would give us a vision for what life with you, when we fully embrace who you are, could look like. That it wouldn't just be a whole bunch of performance things or a whole bunch of stuff to make ourselves feel better that it would be an intimate, deep relationship with you where we know your love and we can't help but share that love with others, that we are wrecked by you. And like Peter said, where else would we go? Because you alone have the words of life. Jesus, we surrender as best we can right now in this moment to you. Just lift up praise for your great love. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.